Lots of people that you see every day have uh, hidden wounds that you don't know anything about. A fellow was telling me the other day of a young man he worked with who had been regularly beaten since he was a child and mocked, and he's still wounded from the experience. He still assumes that everything that happens to him is going to end up like that. Another came from a home that was broken because his professing Christian dad left his mom, and uh, he was living with his mom when he came home and found his mom had taken her life. So it's like a, a wound that's going to, if it ever goes away, it's going to go away real slow. People carry wounds with them. When I counsel people, sometimes it's just simple wisdom or pointing out something in the scripture they might not have seen or maybe using a kind of a technique to help them to listen or talk. But often there are people before me that they begin to pour out their troubles and as they open up their heart, I realize that I have before me what I, what I call a bird with a broken wing. You ever seen a bird with a broken wing? It's just so pitiful. It's like, like they can never fly. They can't feed themselves. They can't protect themselves. They're completely vulnerable. And it, sometimes the, the wounds are so deep, the hurts are so deep, the injuries are so deep that people are tempted to believe they're of no use. They're just tempted to believe that they'll never accomplish anything worthwhile. They'll never really enjoy life. And they're certainly of no use or they're no value to God or to other people. And that's how they feel. They're, they're birds with, with a broken wing. And it is for birds with a, with a broken wing that we have this little poem for singing Jews who were making their way up to the temple of God to worship God. It was people that had, as a people, as a collective people, were characterized by being wounded. The Jewish people are nationally wounded people. All of us have wounds. Some of us have wounds at the hands of friends. Some of us have wounds that go way back in our youth. Some of us have wounds that continue. Some of you have wounds that you aren't even aware of, but most of you, most of you are. Some of the wounds that we have are, are emotional, or, or maybe they, even, they, they might have started with physical things and ended with emotional things. Maybe there's spiritual wounds and and darkly and too often there are sexual wounds that people bear, things they just hardly can talk about. And sometimes people, certain temperaments, certain people will, will take their darkest, most difficult, painful injuries and keep them to themselves. And they characterize their life, but they keep them to, their, to themselves. Wounds, though, don't make us useless to God. Our wounds, our hurts, and our injuries... Don't make us useless to God. Satan wants us to think that we're useless to God. But our wounds don't make us useless to God. Our wounds don't make us worthless. And this is what this psalm so beautifully is going to teach us. Let's read the psalm. It's Psalm 129 in the, in the beautiful cluster of psalms that are the pilgrim psalms, the psalms of ascent. And if you haven't been with us before, you, you, you uh, maybe don't know that these are a special cluster of psalms historically were used by the people of God when they went up to Jerusalem to worship, and at least those three occasions in the year when they were commanded to go up to Jerusalem, and they would sing these songs. So these are ancient songs inspired by God, beloved by God's people, full of truth about the human condition and about God. Let's read Psalm 129. 
Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed on my back and they made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous. He has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. That's the first stanza. And the second and last stanza. Let all those who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. Let them be as the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reapers not fill his hand, nor he who binds sheaves his arms. Neither let those who pass by them say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Okay, so maybe you remember as we studied these psalms, one of the things that I've said that you can do, because they're poetry, and poets use pictures and other poetic devices, but they use pictures, they, they paint pictures. It's much better to get an idea of what a poem is about by getting the general thrust of the poem and by kind of identifying the pictures than it is to analyze every single word in the sentence structure. Both have their value, but in poetry, it's much more value that things are just simply a, a, a major idea is repeated in different forms of a poetic device or parallelism, and then it has pictures. So there are some vivid pictures in this psalm, one, one picture in the first stanza is a very painful graphic picture of plowing on a person's back. This is a poetic device for, you can probably guess, the practice of scourging. A horrifying, like, torture and even device of execution. And what often when somebody was captured, made a captive, they were scourged. They, in a sense, they plowed on their back. And that's the first picture, so it's a picture of scourging. So you want to kind of ask the question, well, who's scourging and who's being scourged? And obviously, this is a national poem. This is about Israel, obviously, right? Let Israel now say, it says, the, the instruction is given there. Let Israel now say, let Israel say, many a time they have afflicted me from my youth. It's about Israel, about God's people, how from the very youth of the nation, the beginning of the nation, they have been oppressed. They carry wounds as a nation. They're a wounded people. Then the second picture that emerges real clearly in, the, in what we call, and in the Psalms, there are Psalms called the imprecatory Psalms. And, and, and imprecatory Psalms are those Psalms that are like, <gasps> I can't believe you said that, Psalms. Psalms that seem like not very Christian. They're Psalms that curse or Psalms that call down curses and the opposite of blessing. And this isn't the harshest of them, but there's an imprecatory uh, clause here. Let those who hate Zion be turned, uh, be put to shame and turn back. And then the picture is what? It's a picture of grass that's not growing well. It's grass that would be seeded on a housetop, but it would die and it wouldn't produce fruit. There's this picture. So you have the first picture in the first stanza of plowing on the back of Israel. And the second picture in the second stanza of the people that plowed on the back of Israel are not going to prosper. That's really what this psalm is, is saying. Um, there's sarcasm in the last verse. And there's one of those interesting um, you know, uh, customs of Bible times. Uh, in the very last verse, you have a phrase that says, neither let those who pass by them say, blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. It's a part of the imprecation, part of the kind of curse. They're saying, don't let them prosper, God, who have wounded your people. Don't let them prosper. 
You make sure that when people walk by their fields, their fields are barren and there's no harvest there. There was a, in the ancient Near East, there was a custom that when you'd walk by the field of another farmer, and it was obviously that he was blessed, that you would call out, the blessing of Jehovah is upon you. Can you imagine that? If you know farmers, or if you're raised with farmers, they take great pride in their and the crops, and how the crops are arranged, and the flourishing of the crops, and the care of their crops is an extension of who they are. I've known farmers that would, would, would go in the evening, and they would go out, and they would root out all the corn, they call it succotash, the corn that would come up in their soybeans, to make sure that not one stock of corn from last year, a stray seed of corn, would, would, would grow up, so that when people would go by their field of soybeans, it was just one big, vast acre after acre of perfect soybeans. It's a pride in their crops. He's taking a couple boys up to meet the bus for camp. Nathan says to me, we, just, we went by a beautiful field, and he says without any, um, he says without any uh, uh, provocation, he goes, look at that field. It's so beautiful. City kid, right? And I go, yeah, it is. He goes, look at the corn. Even a little boy just goes, look at that. There was just field of corn that was growing out like that. There's something about the beauty of that. Well, they would have this custom. They would cry out. They would say, the Lord, Jehovah's blessing is upon you. And then the farmer would cry back, and may he bless you the same. And that's what's happening there. That's what verse 8, and the, and, the, and the psalmist is saying, may that never happen to the enemies of Israel, that they're able to say, the blessing of the Lord is upon you. Oh, and the Lord bless you too. <laughs> He's saying that. So this is, a, again, it's really common for themes to pop up in these Har- these psalms of harvest because people are bringing a gift of the first fruits often back up to the Lord and they're conscious of the blessing of the Lord and the harvest and they're bringing the harvest and it's common for them to think in terms of national Israel because this is a national holiday and it's common for them to think in terms of family because they're traveling with their family to give honor to God as all of us ought to go with our whole family and give honor to our God and thanksgiving to our God and these themes just surface over and over again in these psalms of ascent, these beautiful psalms of ascent. Notice this, God, though, you asked a question, though, and that is Israel was wounded. Israel was scarred over and over again, wounded, oppressed from their youth. That's what the psalm is saying. From the very beginning, we've been scarred, we've been oppressed. So now ask yourself the question, and could you answer this? So has Israel been useless to God because they were wounded? Or has Israel been useful to God because they were wounded. Well, you know that Israel has been powerfully used of God. His people are useful to God even though they're wounded. Much oppression as a nation. The, the first holocaust, if you will, the Babylonian exile, the Assyrian attack on, on Israel, and then of course the Babylonian attack from Judah and the, and the, and the dispersion. Israel doesn't have to look back on what they, they uh, Israel doesn't tend to look back on what they achieved like some nations do. Israel's uh, persona is they look back on what they've survived. Talk to Jewish people today. They're, they're not so proud of what they've achieved, although the Israelis are achieving a great deal right now. It's not so much that they look at what they've achieved. Their national holidays are all attached to what they've endured, what they survived. Their national narrative is We are an oppressed, wounded people who have been spared by God. This kind of goes back to this question, does God use wounded nations? Well, God used the wounds of Israel for good. If you haven't seen Fiddler on the Roof, then you're culturally deprived, of course, and you should go home immediately 
and get on Netflix and try to find it and watch every last minute of it. Uh, it's, it's artistic. And, of course, you know that this Tevi is this Jewish uh, peasant farmer in Russia who's oppressed, and he's the protagonist. He's the key uh, player. And he has a friend that comes by, and he, he's talking about not having money. And his friend says to him, well, you know that money is the world's curse. And Tevi says back to him, may the Lord smite me with that curse, and may I never recover from that curse. <laughs> and then there's that classic part where he says, I know, he says, looking up to God, I know, I know that we are your chosen people, but once in a while, couldn't you just choose someone else? That's his favorite, my favorite line. Israel is saying, well, from the very beginning, we've been oppressed, wounded, broken, scarred. Our, our enemies have plowed on our back, caused all kinds of pain. It shouldn't be taken too far away from like kind of raw nuts and bolts. We're talking about children being taken away captive. Can you imagine that? We're talking about physical oppression, military oppression, besieging, starvation, uh, thirst, sexual mutilation, horrible things that happened to Israel. And yet God's, Israel's history is full of painful wounds and, and miraculous deliverances from God. And they're, they're, we're supposed to look at Israel and connect our life to Israel. God says, this is how I deal with people. So don't expect that God doesn't use wounded things. He used Israel, and Israel was wounded. Um, the second thing that's interesting is to ask a question about any part of the Bible, but especially about these Psalms, and in this series we've been saying this. We've been saying, well, do you see a path to the cross here? If I said to you, do you see any pictures, do you, do you see any images that remind you of the cross? Well, all of us would immediately say, well, yes. That's how they tortured Jesus. They scourged him. They plowed his back. Evil, sadistic, wicked, godless men abused and tortured the perfect son of God in a public scourging, a horrifying public scourging. And you could see it if you take your Bibles tonight and you meditate on what Jesus did for you in Isaiah 53. You just see this graphic and poetic and beautiful and thought-provoking picture prophetically it's a messianic prophecy. These were written hundreds of years before Christ. And that Christ comes and he fulfills this in his death and in how he dies. There's obviously a path to the cross here. Jesus, think about this. God used Israel's wounds for good. They weren't worthless to God because they were broken. They were used of God because of their brokenness. And God used Jesus' wounds for good. Jesus' wounds, was, is that the greatest understatement you ever heard? Did God use Jesus' wounds for good? Amen. Thanks be unto God that he did, or we wouldn't be saved. So let Israel now say, many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed on my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous, and he cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. And so it was with Christ. His very death was the thing that in the mind of God, the Satan and demons didn't know it because they're not omniscient, only God is. They didn't know that they were playing into God's hands, into God's program when they crucified Christ, when they plowed his back, when they crucified him and he died and was buried and they rose again and he rose again. They didn't know that that was God's plan before the foundation of the earth, the Bible says. So, so think about this and think about you. You have wounds, you have hurts, even if they seem small, 
You have things that have made you who you are, and they're your hurt, the hurts. Part of the thing that has made you who you are are the hurts that you've endured, are the hurts that you're enduring right now. Satan whispers in your ear and says, you're worthless, you're useless. God says, wait a minute. Look how I use the wounds of Israel, and look how I use the wounds of my son Jesus. And so when somebody maybe comes to you, and they're wounded, and they're hurting, and they think, where is God, and what is God doing? Remind them of Israel and remind them of God's people. Remind them of the cross. Just take them to the cross and ask them. And you know, I often say, and this is repetition for you, but in, in a counseling or encouraging people, I often will say, what was the worst thing that ever happened in the world? And the answer to the question is the most unjust, most inhumane, the most vile thing that ever happened in the history of humanity was when people abused and killed Jesus Christ. And what was the most wonderful thing that ever happened in the history of humanity when Jesus Christ laid down his life? And the very moment that the worst thing was happening and the very act that the worst thing was happening, the best thing was happening. So when somebody asks you, how could I have been wounded morally or wounded physically or wounded, uh, uh, you know, sexually? And I'm like, well, it's not over yet. God, God takes beautiful things and grows them in dark soil. Beautiful flowers grow in dark soil. And so God will use your wounds for good. Example, uh, one quick example would be, uh, as you know, the Apostle Paul. If we went tonight, we won't, but we went to 2 Corinthians 11. Remember that little part in 2 Corinthians 11, it's verse 23 and following, where Paul describes the bad things he'd been through? It's amazing. Nobody here has been through that many bad things. Shipwrecks and beatings and, and all of that. Nights in the deep, floating in the ocean, thinking you're going to drown, and imprisoned, and abused, and eventually, they think, beheaded. Did God use his wounds? Of course he did. We, we sit here with huge chunks of our Bible written, penned by this man who was a wounded, a wounded man. And so, you know, my encouragement to you from this psalm tonight is to realize if God would use a wounded Israel, and God would use his own wounded son, and God would use wounded apostles. Don't assume that you're going to get through life without wounds, without hurts. Just take them and transform them so that they can be used by God in a powerful way. You know the difference between people isn't some have not been wounded and others have. It's some have figured out how to take their wounds, transform them into usefulness, and others haven't. So the question that probably hangs in the air now is, so how would you do that? And the psalm tells us. The psalm very sweetly and simply tells us exactly how to transform our hurts and our wounds into good. It's very clear in the instructions that are given in the psalm. And they're a little surprising. Well, the first one is, is interesting. It's praise him for his deliverance. You get that from the instruction in the psalm. Let Israel now say. This is a worship leader. It's like Dale said, let's sing this song. Let's sing about God's grace. And, I, and the people all sang about God's grace. Let's sing about the cross. We sang about the cross. By the way, the uh, song you sang tonight, the second one, um, Hallelujah, what is it? All I Have is Christ. I got to be present when they first introduced that you know, publicly in a, in a huge conference of pastors, thousands of pastors. And it was after John Piper had preached one of his like, hallmark, Christocentric, gospel-rich, just dripping with gospels, and all the pastors are like ready to launch, and then they bring out this song, and the, you should have heard the pastors singing that song. All I have is Christ. It was a wonderful night. It's a powerful night. We had some really, some really good um, Irish shepherd's pie after that too, but that's another subject uh, for another day. 
God will use the if God will use the wounds of Israel for good. He'll use the wounds of his son for good. If he uses the wounds of his apostles for good, then he will use our hurts for good. Now, how? Okay, so we praise him for his deliverance. Let Israel now say, Many a time have they afflicted me, but I keep landing on my feet by God's grace. That's he's saying so he's telling the people how to be how to use their woundedness in a, in a redemptive way. And that is to sing about the deliverance of God, to praise God for his deliverance. And we can do that. You say, well, wait a minute, my, what if I, what if I, like we have a, uh, maybe a brother who's dying of cancer, but well, he's counted as sheep for the slaughter. He's killed all the day long. But in all these things, he's what? More than conquerors because you can't kill a man who has eternal life. His, his life ends and he goes on to be with the Lord. How did you feel when you first heard Elizabeth Elliot pass through pearly gates of splendor this week? <laughs> through gates of pearly splendor was the hymn that she named her first book about her husband's her first husband's death. So, how did you feel? Well, sad and glorious, broken and joyful. And imagine this precious lady who's inspired so many of us going through gates of pearly splendor and meeting those that she was used of the Lord to win to Christ and Jim Elliot and this her first second husband's name Lars Granner that her third husband I love to hear her speak publicly she would always speak and she would say my first husband was Jim Elliot and he died on mission field my second husband I think it was Lars Granner was her second I can't remember they said his name and he died and, he, and she said this is my third husband and he's feeling well today she <laughs> She always said it that way. And uh, she's with the Lord. So was she defeated? No. She's, she's gained her, her victory in, uh, ultimately and to be in the presence of the Lord. And so you, you say, well, my, my, my house isn't that nice. Well, that's okay. It's, not, it's just temporary anyway. You say, well, I don't make that much money. Well, that's all right. You, you have an inheritance from God. It's, it's going to be pretty impressive. You say, well, I sometimes I just can't get any rest. I'm just tired, and it's hard. What I do is hard, and I can't get rest. Wait, do you believe there is a God who's created a place of eternal rest and peace for the soul? That's what he said. And so we have this, this first thing we do. How do you, how do you turn a hurt into, uh, into good? And that is the first thing is just continually praise him for his deliverance through the hurt. That's what they, that's what they said right here. The second thing is, is interesting, and it might be not what you think, but I would say it this way. You have to entrust your enemies to the Lord. This is in, in this imprecatory part. He's saying, God, you do what you're supposed to do. They're unrighteous. And we know with the gospel, uh, with the full you know, view of the gospel, we know that there are two ways to pray for people who hate God. <laughs> what was it the, what's the guy's name? The Duck Dynasty guy, Robinson. What's his first name? Yeah, Phil, thank you. Phil was being interviewed on Fox News, and he, he doesn't have a lot of uh, sophistication. About, he doesn't want to use a lot of sophistication language. He likes to be very plain spoken. And he's talking about what should happen to ISIS. And he says, probably not the best way of saying it, well, they should either be converted or killed. <laughs> well, it didn't sound quite right, but I knew what he meant. What he meant was they deserve to go to hell. Or, you know, they repent of their sin and they can be born again. Or... or they deserve well. He's the man was right. It wasn't the that wasn't the most sophisticated way of putting it, and it gave you know the secular press a, a great handle to criticize him more. But the guy knows what he's talking about. 
the, our bitter, wicked enemies of God and of Israel and of Jesus and of his apostles deserve the justice of God. So we can pray in two different ways. We can pray for God's mercy or for God to execute his justice on them. The psalmist did. So um, in, in this case, you entrust your enemies to the Lord. You say, God, you are going to be vindicated. This is a wicked person who's treated your people wickedly, and they will come to a, to a, a violent end unless by your mercy you should choose to, to extend your mercy to them like you have me. And then they become my brother and no longer have to make them the subject of my imprecatory prayers. Recently, I met a woman who had faithfully endured an unfaithful husband, alcohol, drugs, infidelity, and eventually death. And she went to church very wounded and sat in church alone in the Sunday school class of other married people. Somebody one day said, well, you should go to this other class. There's another fellow over here teaching a class. So she went to the other class. The teacher of the class was a a doctor who had never been married, and she loved his teaching and grew from it. And on some class outings, they began to spark and are married now. And a happy, joyful, Christ-honoring, peaceful, delightful marriage. God doesn't always help us land on our feet in this life. Some people are going to go uh, be honored by the Lord because they were faithful in this life. And though they didn't see the reversal of their earthly fortunes. Imagine a little boy at a county fair gets on an airplane ride. They, they fasten his little seat belt. He's got a sober look on his face. He's flying an airplane. The ride begins. The little plane goes in circles. His parents and his grandparents are shouting and and waving as he goes by and and taking pictures as if he's Charles Lindbergh leaving to cross the Atlantic by air for the first time. The little fellow's hair is blowing in the wind. The family is is shouting, but he's not laughing. He's intense. He's focused because he's a pilot and he's flying solo. He's got to concentrate all of his powers to keep his aircraft aloft. He's discovered there's a lever. He lifts the lever and he realizes the plane will rise. And when he lowers the lever, the plane descends On the dashboard are the decals of complex instrumentation. There's a flashing light that that means nothing. There are pedals that do nothing. There's a yoke that turns nothing. He grasps it with both hands, and he banks around the circle. And with a furrowed brow, he works the buttons on the yoke and the lever. Finally, the ride comes to an end. And the little boy climbs out on the wing as if he just returned triumphantly from the moon. Or as if he just completed a sortie defending London from the Luftwaffe. His heart pounds. His hands tremble. The whole flight depended on his skill as a pilot. Most people, most people I know have a hold on this life as if the whole thing depended on them. Their hearts pound. Their hands tremble. They're working the levers in a desperate attempt to keep their life aloft. But God is at the controls. And God, he rules the world with an overruling providence He's sovereign over all things. Those who are under the protection of the new covenant, ratified by the blood of Jesus, can come to no ultimate harm because all things work together for good for them. 
And since God is for them, it doesn't matter who's against them. And so if the sovereign God defends you, no weapon can succeed against you. No enemy, no difficulty can overpower the blessing of the Lord that's secured by Jesus on Calvary. The little boy didn't need to worry at all. He could have enjoyed the ride. And I think one day that we'll wish we'd realize that God was really in control and we'll wish that we had enjoyed the ride while it lasted. Now here's another fella. I, he's selected for a singing team while he's in college. He's, he's going to get to do what he loves the most, sing and travel the American West with other young people. All expenses paid. His tuition's paid. He's ecstatic about it. He's going to be on campus for about three weeks training. And then in late September to Christmas, he'll be on tour in the American West singing. Early in September, a subtle change comes into his life. It happened one night at a church picnic. In fact, it was Saturday night, September the 9th, 1978. He met a girl with dark eyes and long, dark hair. He talked her into eating with him in the college cafeteria. She agreed to spend that evening with him. They played putt-putt golf later. He was distracted by the smell of her perfume and the way the wind blew her long hair. She beat him. He talked her into accompanying him to church a few times. He wanted exclusive rights to her romantic affections. It was all he could think about. Before he could secure her promise, he had to leave on tour. For the rest of the fall, he was touring the West, singing in churches. But his heart was always back at college. And he wondered and he worried and he didn't really enjoy the tour or enter into it with a whole heart because he kept worrying and wondering about the girl with the dark eyes and the long dark hair back on campus and if she was making the acquaintance of other young men. Uh, he, he lived just to, to call her on the phone. He longed to get rare mail from her. And she was among the prettiest and the best of the new freshman crop that had come in that year. And he knew that she was getting a lot of attention. But what he didn't know was this. What he didn't know was that one day shy of a year from the day they met at a church picnic, she would walk the aisle of her home church and she would become his companion for life. And then they would get in his little lime green Plymouth duster and they would drive off into the sunset together. And eventually they would have four sons and four daughters. So far they've been married 36 years. And looking back, from the perspective of passing time, he can see now that God was always clearly in control and he didn't have to worry. He could have enjoyed the ride, but he didn't. I can just tell you this. The enemies of my youth have not prevailed against me. And the enemies of Israel's youth have not prevailed against them. And the enemies of Christ's youth have not prevailed against him. And the enemies of your past do not have to prevail against you. Get in the habit of giving him praise for his deliverance and taking your troubles and your enemies and just turning them over to the Lord for him to do what's just, and he will. And tonight, we want to pray. Uh, we have some time here. Uh, you have a, a really current, these prayer lists are made like to the minute current till to about noon on, uh, on Wednesday. And there are a lot of our members are in, in need of prayer. Thank you for being here tonight. Encouragement, encouragement to see you. And I, and I trust that this psalm, when you go back to these psalms, you know, on the surface, you look at a psalm and you think, hmm, you know, they, when you study and you probe and you, and you learn, 
They're so enriching. You know, here's a person who's actually expressing anger in the Bible. That's helpful, right? Let's pray. Lord, we, as we go to prayer as a church, Lord, I pray you'd just hear the, the murmurings as they go out across the well, group we have here tonight, that you'd hear our prayers, that you would bless our church, Lord, your church, that you would make it and continue to make it the kind of church that you want it to be, a, a faithful uh, witness to Jesus Christ in our time. And uh, Lord, I, I uh, thank you for these that you've gathered here tonight. I pray you'd bless each one of them. In Christ's name we pray, amen.